1: I'm in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade. I kidnapped greatness and left no ransom on the grandson of Muhammad. This is the Church Politics Podcast with the And Campaigns, Justin Gibbony and Michael Ware, brought to you by Fourth District. Uh, Justin, how are you doing this week?
0: i'm doing pretty good man just coming off an event uh that we had called the pursuit of unity that we did with jackie hill perry show baraka lisa fields and some others we had a really good crowd of engaged uh mostly college students that came out and it was just a good time good message aspirational but really touching on some tough issues within the church including race politics uh and and, and it was strong so I, I was happy about that
1: that's great i uh had a blast at redeemer uh The event was held uh, where the West Side um, uh, campus or church uh, worships, which is where they hold their uh, jazz service. So I don't know if you if you knew this. So Redeemer holds has a jazz service, the only one in the country that I'm aware of on Sundays at 5 p.m. at the W83 ministry uh, center. And, uh, it's my favorite worship service and in, in the country. I mean, I've just, I've just, uh, heard some incredible music there. Uh, uh and so it was cool to be in that same space and we just had a wonderful event shout out to David Bisgrove who's the sh- who's the pastor over there who participated in the event we had a great conversation and loved meeting folks uh, afterwards and had a good time uh, signing my book and and just just talking about the state of things it was a good good time for the event and then just in uh this uh past week uh, we announced uh an an am campaign event you want to tell folks about that
0: Yeah, that's right. So the day after midterms, we will be having a Christian roundtable to talk about politics. We got Christian Republicans, Democrats really just going to look at the results and kind of talk about what, what it means for our Uh, political landscape and how we should engage civically from there on so that should be a good time that's on november i think it's wednesday november 7th and we're really going to get into it so if you're in the atlanta area be there if you're not in the atlanta area this will be live stream so you can check it out on live stream so this should be exciting
1: yeah. And, you know, this will really be the first formal opportunity that uh, that the AND campaign that Justin and I will have uh, will have the opportunity to respond to what happened on Tuesday. So we'll be delivering uh, a kind of a formal analysis that'll go beyond, you know, what what we could share on Twitter. And so I'm excited that we'll have this opportunity to uh, to review the midterms together and and uh, and uh, have a conversation about what it looks like moving forward because things are going to be shaked up uh, after the midterms uh one of the people who's who's hoping things don't get shaked uh uh, shook up uh uh in uh in a direction that is against his favor is georgia secretary of state brian kemp Uh, uh just now i know you're there in atlanta and you've been following this story closely. And so for the first topic of this week's episode, we want to talk about uh, the, the brewing controversy that is increasingly taking the center of uh, that Kemp Abrams gubernatorial race in Georgia, which is uh, whether there is mass voter disenfranchisement happening. Uh, Justin, do you want to give folks background on what the what the controversy is and where, where things stand?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. And that was a a good lead. Uh, So in Georgia, where I've been since 2006, uh, there is a very contentious gubernatorial, which means governor's race going on here between uh, Democrat minority leader Stacey Abrams and Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp. Now, things were already hot, but they got even hotter when the Associated Press broke the news that 53,000 Georgia voter registration applications were being held by the state. Now, the voter registration and voter rights in general is a pretty pressing issue in a few states where voter suppression allegations have been made. Those have been made in Georgia as well, but it's even more of an issue because. Uh, in Georgia, Brian Kemp is in charge of enforcing Georgia's voter registration laws. Uh, Abrams has called him to step down, which seems reasonable to me, if not if Nothing else to avoid any perception, any perceived impropriety. Uh, but Kemp has refused to do that, uh, really leaning on precedent uh, that other elected officials have stayed in office while running for governor. So what he's doing certainly isn't illegal. Uh, there is precedent for it. I just don't think it's a good look. And if you wanted to avoid uh, impropriety, the the perception of impropriety, it probably would have been best to step down. But that does not look like it's going anywhere. Uh, So these uh, registration applications are being held pursuant to Georgia's exact match law, uh, which was passed in 2017. I believe it was House Bill 268, uh, which was meant to clean up Georgia's election code. Uh, There are a lot of bugs in the election code. And so the, the folks who wrote this, particular policy were saying they were trying to clean this up now the exact match law requires voter registration registration applications to match driver's license state id or your security or, or your social security excuse me records exactly so any misspellings misplaced hyphens you know or any issues with government records can cause your registration to be placed on hold even if those were mistakes made by people in those government offices. Um, now, what you should know, if, if if you happen to be one of the people who is on hold, you should have gotten notice. Now, you can still vote. So So here's the thing. If your registration is on hold and you show up to vote, you can still vote if you bring a photo ID, but you can't vote by absentee ballot. So. Some people are saying, well, why is this such a big deal? If you can go bring your ID and vote, it's not, it's, it shouldn't be a problem. Well, the critics are saying, well, w- The fact that this even happened may really just discourage people from voting. You have people that may have just registered for the first time or whatever, and getting a notice like that, they may think, you know what? I'm done. (laughs) I tried. It's just not going to work. They don't want me to vote, so I'm not going to come. I'm not going to vote. So that's been a huge controversy. Now, one thing I'll say about the exact match law was, in my opinion, there was never any good explanation or convincing explanation of why it was needed. Um, this particular part of the law, uh, it seems to have unnecessarily complicated the pro uh, the process, uh, and it could discourage people from from moving forward. So you hear a lot of conversation from Republicans about voter fraud, but even within this debate, there wasn't there was nobody was pointing to exactly what voter fr- fraud was going on or instances or anything like that, and so it looks a little shaky. And I understand where. Uh, Advocacy groups who are against this Are coming from so advocacy groups Filed a federal lawsuit accusing Georgia of disenfranchising Minority voters because the law Would have a a desperate impact On those voters And uh, so there was a a back and forth For quite a while the state ended Up settling and and, and actually Going along with some of the advocacy Group's uh, demands And so now we find ourselves we're, we're We're still having this back and forth in Georgia Another issue that was presented in Georgia Georgia, is that some precincts uh, were being selected to be closed down and and people felt like that was being they were the ones that were selected, again, would disenfranchise minority voters. Um, now, the secretary of state, to be clear, doesn't monitor the closures of precincts. Um, that's done by the county. And now, after a Supreme Court decision, I think in 2013, don't quote me, um, they can close uh, those precincts without federal oversight. So it just makes people feel uh, a, a little weary because of this country's history when it comes to disenfranchisement. I think folks have good reason to be a little worried about the situation.
1: Yeah, thank you for that overview. I mean, we're uh, this has been uh, a, a story that's taken up uh, a, a lot of bandwidth, but we're also seeing in, in North Dakota, in the wake of Heidi Heitkamp's 2012 victory, which she won her Senate seat by about 3,000 votes uh, in in large part due to support from Native American uh, community, uh, the Republican uh, state legislature advanced laws to make it harder for Native Americans to vote basically by uh, restricting uh, voter registration to uh, to requiring an ID that Native Americans uh, generally uh, can't apply for and don't have. Uh, And this uh, last week, we saw the Supreme Court uh, decline to intervene, uh, decline to strike down that law. Uh, It seems pretty clear the political motivation of it. You just, uh, Javi Heikamp is the only uh, statewide Democratic elected officials she won a race by 3,000 votes so what's one way to uh, try and make sure she isn't able to get re-election will will make it uh, make it harder for uh, according to some reports uh, 70,000 North Dakota residents uh, uh, will will uh, be uh, it will be harder for them to vote and so uh, we're seeing these kinds of uh, voter ID laws um uh, around the country some like those in north uh, carolina were uh, specifically found to be motivated by a sort of racial animus or, or racial um uh, uh, racial spotlighting and uh it, it's it's deeply unfortunate it's deeply unfortunate just at a time when you know some of the same kinds of people who will complain about, especially young people turning out or voter turnout in general, uh, but but won't speak out against these laws. And I, I think we're very right to, uh, and you're very right, Justin, to repeat for folks that they can vote, they should vote. Uh, if they've been notified, they can still vote as long as they uh, have ID. But But part of this whole thing is about creating an environment where folks just don't know what's going on. Uh, where they'll hear that folks are being removed and so they don't want to waste their time by doing something uh, by by turning up the polls and not having their vote even counted. And at a time when we should be encouraging civic engagement around uh, across the board to have these kinds of efforts that, as you said, Justin, aren't well justified. There have been no uh, legitimate uh, reports of widespread voter fraud uh, anywhere. Uh, and, and yet, uh, that excuse is being used to make it more difficult for, for tens of thousands of, uh, of Americans to vote. And it's, uh, it's deeply unfortunate. Yeah
0: yeah cuz i'm on the front lines with you if you can show me voter fraud that we need to make some fixes i'm i'm all for that uh i don't think it's good for democracy if we had rampant voter fraud going around everywhere but when you can't show instances of voter fraud or you don't have you know you don't have any true examples that you're bringing to the legislature to show people that this is really an issue and you can persuade people that that it's an issue then when you're tampering with these laws um, it's going to look, people are going to be suspicious and they should. And so I, I am, I commend the advocacy groups that called this to question. I'm glad that in uh, Georgia, they forced the, the state to, to, to settle and, and make some compromises because it just was never clear. And I watched this fairly closely. It was never clear that those changes were needed. And so it looked like we were getting very political and you just don't play with people's uh, right to right. vote. Uh, I I understand why people do it because they want to win, but it's not right. That's not what this country should should, should stand for. And I would expect Republicans and Democrats to hold a high standard when it comes to anything that would stop or discourage people from voting.
1: Well, we're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to be talking about, uh, believe it or not, a 2020 poll that came out. We're going to be talking about. Uh, some other news that came out of Georgia this past week uh, involving uh, Democrats' approach to civility. We're going to be right back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast, and, and Justin, you know, after uh, sort of the 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 the, the break in of the Kavanaugh nomination and and all of that in relation to the midterms. Uh, Kavanaugh gets confirmed. And then the very next week, instead of turning back to some kind of uh, uh, some s- strategy and how Democrats are going to take back power. Well, anywhere, uh, since they don't have it anywhere right now, uh, uh, we spent much of last week discussing two comments from senior Democratic officials uh, that gave Republicans ammo and uh, 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 really gave them ammunition. These comments are already in Republican ads going up around the country. Uh, and so let's, let's talk about them. Uh, Hillary Clinton said in an interview, uh, that, uh, You cannot be civil with a political party that wants to wants to destroy what you stand for, what you care about. That's why I believe if we are fortunate enough to win back the House and or the Senate, that's when civility can start again. But until then, the only thing that the Republicans seem to recognize and respect is strength. Uh, This comment uh, was uh, made in a week when uh, uh, a former Attorney General Eric Holder um, said in a fundraiser for Stacey Abrams uh, in McDonough, Georgia, uh, he noted m- m- uh, First Lady Michelle Obama's uh, slogan: "When they go low, we go high," which, of course, was from her 2016. Democratic convention speech, uh, he said, "No, no. When they go low, we kick them. That's what this new Democratic Party is about." Now, a few minutes later, he clarify clarified. He said, "When I say we, you know, we kick them, I don't mean we do anything inappropriate. We don't do anything illegal. But we got to be tough. And so, you know, th- that that's fine. Uh, I think when you draw a direct contrast with the former first ladies, uh, uh, I." Idea that when they go low, we go we go high, and say when they go low, we kick them. Whatever caveat comes after that, you're going to be put in tension with the first lady's uh, high-minded and I think on the mark uh, slogan that she said in 2016. And 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 here's uh, Justin. There's a lot of talk right now among Democrats that act as if the the reason why democrats are not in power is because we've been like too pure like we like we 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 just haven't played mm-hmm. any games and uh and you know we've just been we've just been taking punches and we've just been rolling over uh and uh, there was an article that came out of crooked media uh, that said uh that said that civility amounted to unilateral disarmament. And now it's funny because in in my uh in, in my in my book, Justin, I kind of tried to summarize a, a view that I knew was out there, but I hadn't heard said explicitly. And I, I use the exact phrase that some political, some politicians and their strategists view civility as unilateral disarmament. So so to see, you know, uh less than two years after my book come out, someone say that you know, with a straight face, like, like that's, that's the argument they want to make. It was, was something else. Uh, Just, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but what, what, what do you think? uh, Tell me a a bit about uh, sort of how you think about the, the animating force behind this rise of, of Democrats wanting to distance themselves from civility.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, let me start off by saying this. Um, I'm all for the message. Let's get busy. Let's take to the streets. Let's be loud. Let's let people know what we think. Let's get people out to vote. Let's you know, let's fire people up. I'm all for that message. I don't think any of that, whether it's taking to the streets, whether it's getting loud in certain circumstances, I don't think any of that is necessarily uh, uncivil. And so this message uh, telling people to do away with civility, I think, is misplaced. Um, And what it's about, to answer your question, is it's really about firing people up for uh, the midterms and getting them out to vote. Um, I honestly think that what Clinton and Holder said was irresponsible, uh, because at the end of the day, neither of them will be on the front lines when incivility starts to have potentially dangerous or deadly consequences. I think you have two former public servants who were upset and who were not the leaders that we've seen them be in other instances. And they fed into the spirit of the day. I think what it's really about is getting their base excited to go out and vote. But if you do away with civility and that's your message, then you're bringing the result could be something much worse than what you're even talking about or what I think the motivation is. Um, To be honest I don't have any evidence that any of these people are really thinking hard about what the alternative to civility is. Where where exactly does this lead? And what do you think your opponent's response is going to be? So if I'm running up on somebody while they're at dinner, if I'm spitting on somebody, if I'm yelling in their face when they're just trying to walk with their family, do I think that's going to persuade them to go along with me? Do I think that's going to have that's going to make them be more civil towards me? Like the whole conversation what Hillary said about, you know, uh, we can't be weak anymore. How is that showing strength and how is that making Republicans or the president less likely to do what they were going to do anyway? In fact, if you ask me, it yeah. brings more people to their side. Now, I don't want to do away with the fact that we got to the point where we're removing the norms of civility it started with trump's campaign so so let's be very clear i I don't think one party uh well i do think actually since it started with trump's campaign and many republicans didn't say anything about it that they bear some responsibility for this conversation so i do want to be i want to be very clear about that let's not forget where this started um but yet and still democrats are coming to the point where we're saying When times get tough, our principles are going to go out the window and it really seems like on both sides, what was happening during the campaign with Trump and what's happening with Democrats now, it seems like a big temper tantrum instead of having the discipline to go in there and do it the right way, which is hard. So I'm not going to say it's easy, but instead of having the discipline and principles to stick with what's right, you get upset because you you lost the seat, you lost this, you lost that, and now it's by any means necessary. Uh, That is a dangerous position to take. And again, I'm not sure that people have thought this through. When you run up on somebody, when you start spitting on people and and doing all these different things, screaming in people's faces. Again, how do you think they're going to respond? And when they don't respond the way you want them to respond, what is the mob going to do? The mob is going to up the ante. So that's why it's so irresponsible to even have these type of conversations where we're saying civility is done until we win again, because you're sending young people out there. You're sending people out there who might not, you know, have the understanding of, of history and, and, and civics like you do. You're sending them out there. And when they don't get the response they want, they're more likely to go into violence and all type of other things as they up the ante. And if you're not going to be on the front lines when all that jumps off. Then you need to be very slow to recommend getting rid of civility, because if we look throughout history, there certainly are times when civilizations have come to the point where civility is no longer tenable. But it doesn't end well. It just gets worse and worse and worse, whether you're talking about civil war or whatever. And we can talk about just war theory, but understand what you're saying when you're telling people to cross that line understand what what the alternative is and also understand from a, a democrat perspective there are a lot of people on the right who are ready for a, a conversation like that if you even want to call it a conversation right, right? that are that are ready for things to get violent or things that, to go to a place where really only the powerful or the people with the most weapons benefit so civility is actually helpful to people who do not have power because it gives them a seat at the table or a voice when otherwise the powerful would shut them out. So when you're asking for incivility, I'm just saying be very clear on what you expect the result to be and the consequence if it really goes where you're. I think I'd say two things.
1: First, I think it it gives up a major just politically speaking, it gives up a major line of argument against. Trump and against this administration and against the Republican Party like it, it makes it very difficult to uh, to talk about uh, uh, Trump's many many infractions against Civic norms. And I'm not, I'm not playing a both sides here. I'm not playing a, but, but what I'm saying is if, if you're going to make it explicit that you can only be civil again once you're back in power, then it makes it very difficult to prosecute the case that you are, that you are de facto the responsible party, that you are de facto, uh, the, uh, worthy of, uh, the votes of even people who might disagree with some of your substance, but want to restore a sense of civility back to our discourse. So that that would be the first, I think, politically to to say it out loud is is ridiculous. The second thing I'd say is, I hear all of this democratic pining to uh, to to be like republicans um if only we we were just consistently intransigent and unwilling to to make deals that we thought helped the american people like if only we were willing to say no to everything if only we were willing to be uncivil uh then maybe this would turn out differently well there are a lot of things to say to that but but one thing i'll put on the table uh is that rep- republicans given given the ideology of their party actually have a bit more uh leeway to have a debate where everything is chaos and everything is antagonism uh because part of the republican Argument is that we, as a country just can't do big things together that actually we're so divided that all the states are so different and and rural is so different from urban and the 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 coasts are so different from the heartland that you know we we really can't do big things like health reform we really can't uh do. Uh, uh take on big challenges together and so it makes sense it it, it actually works to their advantage they have uh to carry out debate in an uncivil way now i'm not saying all of them do that i'm just saying that they their arguments their policy arguments don't depend uh, meeting some sort of standard that we're in this together. <laughs> well, Democrats, if, if you promote an uncivil dialogue, if you promote a dialogue that says that uh that the two uh, that that half the country has to hate the other half of the country and it's all about attaining power, then you can't you can't build up any sort of confidence that the government can do big things because because government then just represents whoever was able to be most vicious and most uncivil in a political campaign. And so I'd be I'd really caution Democrats against trying to chase what they think worked for Donald Trump uh, into making it into some model of their own. And then just the last thing I'd say on that is look at the last successful Democratic campaigns, they, they they weren't they weren't brass knuckle now certainly not everything that they uh, certainly uh, th- these weren't people who thought politics was beanbag and all but uh, th- these were people who put forward a message of hope and bringing the country together uh, uh, Carter uh, Clinton Obama uh, those were our successful models of how you win national elections uh, not uncivil we're going to kick them when they're low uh will be civil after the election is over a kind of kind of mantras
0: yeah i agree and again i think this is all about when it comes from two leaders who, who know better this is all about firing up the base to get them out to vote to get them even to be more active i just don't think we're thinking through what the actual consequences could be um As I understand it, former first lady Michelle Obama was asked about Holder's comments and she graciously uh, corrected him uh, basically by saying that fear, you know, playing on people's fear is never the way to go. And so she maintained her stance. Uh, I think what she said initially, that when they go low, we go high, is the right way to go about it. And it's the only only way that we can maintain uh, a society that can actually get take care of problems and get things done. We have to understand that the other side is not going anywhere, and so you can wish people away, whether you're on the right or whether you're you're on the left. They're going to be here for a while, suffering people and, and a lot of things going on that are present in our uh, in politics right now. Need we need to find solutions for these things, and we're going to need each other to get those solutions to come to those solutions. And so we have to admit we, we when we disagree on certain issues, but always keep. The idea that we're all trying to make the country better at the top of at the top of mind so we can actually come up with some solutions to make things better. And yeah, I was just disappointed just, to hear these just, two uh, just take to it put, there.
1: you know, so I think everything that we've said, you know, makes sense from a from a just from a citizenship level, like all all American citizens, whatever background, whatever I I, I hope would be able to uh, uh, access access. And appreciate and take what we've said as uh, as their own. Uh, specifically, the Christians now we just need to think very carefully about what uh, incivility uh, reflects about how we think of the dignity of the person that we're engaging with. Uh, and uh, typically, uh, incivility fails to recognize the God given dignity of. Of your interlocutor. Uh, it says that they're beneath just basic levels of respect that, are afford- that should be afforded to them in general society, but should especially be afforded to them in light of the God we serve. And the fact that in a political context, we understand that politics is not ultimate, that as important as political debates are, that our political differences, even if our opponents are undermining or don't, uh, their policies don't reflect our dignity that that does not justify a response that undermines theirs uh, as well and so i would just urge christians to think especially carefully about what kind of uh, what kind of a political culture is developed when we have folks embracing incivility embracing undermining the dignity through rhetoric and political tactics of even people they vehemently disagree with all right, folks, when we get back again, I I, I hate to do this to y'all, but it, hey, it's real. And we're just here to cover what's happening. Uh, there is a 2020 CNN poll on a Democratic uh, potential Democratic candidates for the nomination. And we're going to cover it for you uh, when we get back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, uh, you know, we're three weeks uh, away from midterm elections but we uh we already have the first cnn numbers for the 2020 democratic presidential nomination that were released uh on uh October 14th and uh there's a lot of a lot of names here <laughs> uh, uh, uh joe, but former vice president joe biden is the clear runway at this point 33% bernie sanders at 13 which i think is really uh, really interesting given the fact that he ran a, a national campaign uh, just you know three years ago and to to only be at a uh, to only be at 13 percent I think is an indication of that maybe his his support is getting split up among other candidates. Uh, Kamala Harris who we've talked a lot about on this podcast at nine percent Elizabeth Warren uh, uh, at eight Cory Booker and John Kerry at five. Mike Bloomberg, who just became a Democrat two months ago, uh, uh, is at 4%, Beto O'Rourke at 4 Holder at 3 uh, and then a list of other candidates at 2% or under, including Eric Garcetti, the mayor of L.A., uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, who's a, uh, who's someone to watch, and then Deval Patrick, who I also think is someone to watch at 1%. Uh, uh, Justin, these, these numbers are... Interesting to look at. Interesting to to think about a bit. But uh, but but what what was your response? What do you think about him? <laughs> I
0: thought it was interesting. I guess it's fun to see these early polls come out. Uh, interesting to see Biden on top. Uh, I'm with you. I, I was really surprised that you see Sanders at just 13 percent. Somebody who was very close to actually winning the nomination last time seems to be the standard bearer for, you know, this socialist Democrat movement. And somehow, you know, couldn't break 20 percent. I would expect him almost to be at 30 percent based on what he had done before. So that was interesting to me. I think you're right. Uh, his vote is getting split up. But if he's the standard bearer, it's interesting that that would happen at this time. I think there are a few things that play into that. Uh, the fact that uh, women are, are going to be. Really uh, tough to beat in this in this primary. And so some some women are coming up. Uh, There are some strong uh, uh, female candidates in this race that could have something to do with it. Um, And then, as you know, something else outside of Sanders is this is going to change because a lot of this is just based on name recognition. So I think I think you see Biden being so high up there just because people know that name and people aren't as familiar with, you know, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and, uh, you know, other folks like that. As people build their brand and build name recognition, I, see, I think you see Biden go down. Yeah. Um, something else they could have played in the Sanders is is age. I mean, Sanders is what, seventy. He's over seventy five, maybe seventy eight, almost. Biden is seventy five. Uh, though that that plays a, you know, in the initial poll, it might not be as a big of a play, but I think at the end of the day, yeah. that does play a role in you know who people vote for, and so. Biden's up. I don't expect him to stay there once everything gets rolling. We'll just have to see. Um, But I I think this Democratic primary and and part of my fear is that it's going to be a race to the far left, just because that's where there seems to be a lot of organization, a lot of activity and a really vocal crowd. And so I think you're going to see even more so the party gets get pushed to the left and candidates just like last time who aren't as far left as they're actually running. Um, and then to add to that, as I said before, I think you see an advantage with women because there is a lot of support there and you have women who are qualified yeah, uh, mean, to we run said on this show uh, before, so should, but so folks this should, be should just
1: get ready. Uh, this race is going to start earlier than it ever has before in, in an explicit way. So uh, we have, uh, we have candidates already going to Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Uh, I I think, I've said it on the show before. If not, I'm saying it now. Do not be surprised if at least one candidate announces as early as the week after the midterms, which which would be unprecedented uh, for a serious candidate to do, to do that. But the the one of the reasons it's going to start so early is because attention, no matter what happens in these midterm elections, attention is going to turn right away to who is going to. Uh, take down and defeat Donald Trump. And that is a focus even greater, I'd say, than uh, than uh, the desire in the Democratic Party to defeat George W. Bush in 2004. There, there is a uh, intense uh, uh, dislike and antipathy towards uh, the, the current president. And this Democratic race is going to be about who is best situated uh, to take him down now. And that's why we're having all these debates about civility. It's why we're having all these debates about whether uh centrist and the new Democrats are what have held the party back or whether it's the liberal wing that's held the party back. Uh, but starting with this campaign, uh, those arguments are going to have faces to them and they're going to be these candidates. And so folks should just, uh, gear up. It's going to be a, it's going to be a long two years. Uh, and, uh, these, these candidates are going to get in pretty early, which, you know, just to your point, Justin, it's going to be interesting to see how long, uh, Biden thinks he could sit, sit out and watch the field develop, uh, before he makes a, a formal decision to get in. And if he really is seriously thinking about running, uh, how long does he want to wait for someone to catch uh catch catch a, a little bit of a spark? I think that's gonna be one of the main questions to watch after these after these midterms and heading into the new year.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I think either way, it's only a matter of time but some before somebody does catch him. So even if he gets involved, it's only a matter of time before one of these um younger candidates who's probably further to the left really, you know, starts giving him a run for his money. So we'll see if he's serious about it, if he's going to step out there. When you see a poll like that, I don't know too many uh, (laughs) elected officials who are going to walk away when they see themselves up uh, by by about 20 points on everybody else. So even if he wasn't planning on it, uh, he may be very well considering it now. And really, Elizabeth Warren, she didn't announce uh, Monday, but it looks like she's very serious about running. She's kind of cleaning up some some stuff about her. Uh, her background, whether she is actually uh, has some Native American blood in her. There's been some controversy about that with um, Donald Trump, but she looks like she's ready to go. Anytime you're addressing something like that on a national 100%. level,
1: All you're right. probably we looking towards the We have one more segment uh, coming up after this. We're going to discuss Emma Green's latest uh, one of her latest pieces for The Atlantic. Uh, we'll tell you more about it when we get back. This is The Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back with the Church Politics Podcast, and uh, we wanted to close out this episode pointing you to uh, an article written by the wonderful Emma Green at The Atlantic. Uh, The headline is, Politics as the New Religion for Progressive Democrats. Uh, I'll read it, a brief excerpt from the article. uh, After uh, uh, going over some new polling data that was commissioned by The Atlantic and the Public Religion Research Institute, Uh, she, she says, Uh, She writes, it's the segment that's surprising. Religiously unaffiliated voters who may or may not be associated with other civic institutions seem most excited about supporting or donating to causes, going to rallies, and expressing opinions online, among other activities. Political engagement may be providing these Americans with a new form of identity, and in turn, they may be helping to solidify the new identity of the Democratic Party. And then she goes on to cover the fact that Democrats have traditionally had a strong base of religious uh, voters. A decade ago, more than 80% of self-identified Democrats were affiliated with some sort of religion. But by 2014, uh, Pew found that 28% of Democrats identified as religiously unaffiliated. I believe that number is now at about one third. Uh, And so, you know, she's really describing the fact that while the Democratic Party, like, uh, like the republican party like uh like we would assume in a country that remains profoundly religious uh is a a, a party made up of a majority of people who identify as religious and yet there's a, this emerging uh demographic and this sort of emerging uh force of religiously unaffiliated folks who as emma goes on to describe in the article seem to be largely grounded in politics. Uh, She says later down in the article, think of it as the pod save America voter, largely elite, politically plugged in, constantly discussing the Republicans' latest political shenanigans at dinner parties, and more focused on national problems than local affairs. Uh, And so, uh, Justin, uh, this this taps into something we talk about quite a bit on the show, which is you know, the, the politics is very important. It affects people's lives in intimate ways. Uh, but trying to make sure that we, uh, in sort of Augustinian terms, you know, rightly order our loves. Uh, and yet I'm agreeing kind of writes that there's, uh, there's a section of folks that have, uh, uh, well, Augustine would, would call disordered loves. And so what What was your uh, what do you think of Emma Green's uh, ideas in this article?
0: I thought it was a great piece. I'm glad that somebody touched on it because the, the activity that you see and the way that people are approaching it is very much religious in nature. And it's always interesting to see people who are unaffiliated or who have issues with religion. When they go into other spaces, they're very much <laughs> religious. And we see that here. Uh, I often say a lot of people aren't, you know, Christianity is a proselytizing faith. Um, And some people have a problem mm. with that. But when it comes to politics and other things, and they get right, into that, right, right. they do the same thing, right? It's about Converting people and, and all that other stuff. So glad that she hit on a point that I don't think a lot of people see. When we look at this poll, we see that these folks who are un- religiously unaffiliated are uh, twice as likely to have attended a rally in the last 12 months. They're a lot more likely to say that they're angry and they tend to be even more liberal and um, and, and the whole point of what she's getting at is they're finding their identity in politics, in this political engagement, which shows you that it's more than just about being effective. Because if it was about being effective, you probably would focus on local affairs more than some of these national things that are going on. But it's really, you know, it's a whole different focus that might not even be the most effective way to go about it. My issue is that it's not only religious unaffiliated people, I think, that are finding their identities and. political political engagement or politics. I see this a lot in the religious community among Christians, among biblical Christians who, as I look out are really parroting what you see from this group that Emma Green is talking about. So you have this group that's very fired up. They're secular, they're college educated, and then you have Christians kind of behind them in some instances, following behind what they're doing. So if I'm following behind somebody who finds their identity in politics, then I'm not finding my identity in Christ And This is something that Michael and I talk about a lot. When you go into politics or you go into political activism, you need to know who you are. You need to know where your identity is or you will very quickly uh, be turned into something that you're not even ready for. I mean, that's partially what uh, politics does with the rhetoric, with the talking points. If you're not very secure in your identity, you will very quick, quickly take on someone else's identity. And I it, see that happen a lot with Christians, and we really need to combat it. And in part, that's what the AND campaign is trying to do. We're trying to create a framework so that Christians can say, OK, my identity is in Christ, and here's how I engage politics and culture without finding my identity in that space, uh, with with making sure that whatever I do in that space, it's aligning with the Great Commission. It's aligning with who I'm supposed to be and being a reflection mm. of Christ, not getting into it and then figuring it out as I go along. That's part partially what we're trying to do. So I was happy to see uh, Emma touch on this subject very thoroughly, which uh, I don't think we would expect anything different. And uh, it was Absolutely. a very good article well, that uh, I think Justin, people need to spend uh, a little more I think time thinking over. We've run
1: through quite a bit. Uh, again, folks, we're really excited about this event on November 7th. Uh, there's going to be some more news attached to that event related to the AND campaign, related to you all. Uh, we're in an exciting season where we're just in the mode of trying to provide resources to you, our listeners, to supporters of the and campaign for folks who are checking in with the and campaign resources to help them and navigate and successfully engage this very complex political environment while remaining, as Justin said, grounded in Christ. And so, uh, please put November 7th on your uh, on your calendars. Uh, your, the midterms are obviously going to be in the news. There's going to be a lot of people talking about them. Uh, this event's going to be a really good way, I think, for you to process uh, what happened the night before and what it means for our country moving forward. And so we hope that y'all will join and let others know about it. Uh, Justin, any final thoughts from you before we wrap this up?
0: Yeah, I would just say that uh, a lot of you, I know, listen to Church Politics on Fourth District on that website. If you do keep doing that. For those of you that listen on uh, iTunes, please make sure that you uh, rate us, that you leave a comment uh, so that we can, you know, we can grow and, and really let people know uh, the type of content that's coming from Church right, Politics. We, we appreciate all you. the support. and I hope everybody has a great week. I'm an advocate for those in the favelas and slums together. Inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> the only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove, tell
1: me, go
0: <laughs> I'm scolding the
1: waves of runaway
0: slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade. Oh, yeah.